Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. Hello, and thanks for giving us a listen today. If this is your first episode, welcome. We think you'll like it. And if you're back for more, we're glad to have you. And want to remind you either way that if you like The Next Track, be sure to give us a review or a rating at iTunes Podcasts. Thank you. This is episode number 61, and today we're joined by our very good friend, Andy Doe. Andy, it's good to see you again. Thanks for having me back on the show. I've been thinking about something for a while. The last time this crossed my mind was a concert I went to in Birmingham in April. I saw Murray Pariah with um, Academy of St. Martin in the Fields. I always love saying that, Academy of St. Martin in the Fields. It sounds so classical, doesn't it? Catchy. Catchy, yes. It's good branding. Yeah, but it screws up my artist column widths in iTunes, you know? <laughs> it's too long. You should have gone with a Neville Mariner band, but... Yeah. And so they performed three works. The first one was Beethoven's Romance Number no. 2 in F Major for violin and orchestra. The second was Beethoven's First Symphony. And the third was Beethoven's Fifth Piano Concerto, the Emperor Concerto. And I was sitting... You know how concert halls have seats along the side, and I was sitting at the side very close to the stage, so I was looking at the orchestra, but I was also seeing the audience below me, and I got to thinking about the etiquette and the tradition and the way you're supposed to act at classical concerts, and... So here's what's really interesting. The Romance Number no. 2 in F Major is a piece that's maybe nine minutes long. After the piece was over, the guy who played the violin, he was bowing and everyone was applauding, and it was fine. Beethoven's First Symphony has four movements. Now, those of us who know Beethoven know that it has four movements. But the first movement ends with a sort of a climax, the same way that the romance did. So people who were at this concert who didn't know the music and applauded after the first single movement piece also started applauding after the end of the first movement of the First Symphony. Of course, this brought down the ire of all the elite concert goers who knew that you're not supposed to applaud there. These were all the people going shh, turning around in their seats going shh to the person behind them, looking out across the, the audience and going shh to the people as if their eyes could burn holes in the people applauding. So there's actually group shushing going on? There is synchronized shushing that goes on <laughs> at these concerts. And I found this interesting that you have to have this etiquette at classical concerts. And if you don't, you're a Philistine and it separates the people into two groups. This isn't new. It crossed my mind at this recent concert. But Andy, when did this become such a big deal? It slightly depends how far back you want to you want to look with the origins of these sorts of codes. Um, to a large extent, a lot of our modern ideas about quite staid manners are really Victorian inventions but but the, the sort of wider cultural historical context of this is that once upon a time the only people who could hear orchestral performances were people who employed orchestras and their guests and it was really during the 19th century that audiences public audiences paying public audiences started going to hear symphonic concerts instrumental music concerts in public theatres. And Beethoven was one of the initiators of this. That's right. So Beethoven was, was one of the initiators of, of this, and, and he was composing at a time when there was a kind of I increasing emphasis on showmanship, both from composers and performers. And at, at the same time as this growing sense of showmanship, there was also the beginnings of the romantic ideal of the composer as as 
artist. And so you have these, these two conflicting pressures here. One, to respect and revere this as, as great art, but on, on the other hand, the, the drive to, uh, to produce a spectacle for the audience and make sure that everybody enjoys a big finish. And so what, what you get is moments that tempt you to applaud in the music and audiences who, who are too busy revering this high art to acknowledge that they're in the presence of other people who are having fun. And the people shushing are more annoying than the people applauding because the noise that they make, these sibilants that they hiss out like, like – a, a basket full of snakes is more annoying than the sound of people enjoying themselves. Well, it's doubly annoying. First, the noise, but now I'm annoyed because there are people in the audience trying to direct traffic who come off like a bunch of elitist boneheads, and they're compelling me to want to shush. Right, right. I mean, it's it's extraordinary, isn't it? That the the kind of self absorption required of a, a a member of the audience to to essentially assert that they are the only people who are allowed to be making noise. It is, it is up to them to decide when it is appropriate. It's not just a protest against um, somehow inappropriately applauding and I interrupting the music at, at a moment where any performer, any composer, anyone with any sense of showmanship can, can see that you're going to prompt the audience to spontaneously applaud. Um, it's it's not just asking people not to do that. It's also demanding that the rest of the public in the concert hall conduct themselves on on your terms. I mean, which is which is more annoying? Which is more disruptive for a member of the audience to spontaneously voice their approval of the performance, or for a larger group of members of the audience to? voiced their disapproval of the conduct of the other members of the audience over the top of music that's being played. <laughs> it does contribute to the feeling that one has that classical music is elitist. And, and I would think that someone who just decides, hey, there's a classical concert, let's go see it. And if this happens, they might feel that they've walked into some place where they don't understand the customs and they might not want to return. That's right. I mean, it's, it's a profoundly unwelcoming way to behave, isn't it? And there are rules, there are actual rules about how you behave in a concert hall. Like, if you try and take pictures or video during the performance, there's a good chance that one of the ushers will come along and tell you that you're not allowed to do that. It's, it's expressed in the conditions of sale of the tickets a lot of the time. Uh, it's often written in the programme that you can't do that. Occasionally, just occasionally... The program notes or the conductor will point out a specific moment and ask you not to applaud there. But generally speaking, it's not written down anyway, anywhere that you can't clap between movements. And the reason that it's not written down anywhere that you can't clap between movements is, is because that's not a rule. Well, it's an, it's an unwritten rule for the people who are the elitists. It, it's worth pointing out that the majority of the people at that concert were older than me. Wow, that's, that's pretty old. That audience was wicked old. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you don't see a lot of young people. And I go to Birmingham a few times a year for concerts, and it, it's pretty much always the same sort of age group. So these are people who are, let's say, stodgy, set in their ways. But wasn't there a time in history when people could applaud 
other times. Wasn't it common to applaud, so let's say in opera, isn't it common to applaud after a particularly well-sung aria? Absolutely. It's very common for there to be riotous and indeed disruptive applause in the middle of an, an opera when somebody sung an athletic or uh, showy aria. It's, it's completely normal for the audience to erupt into applause drown out the music and at times that even causes the conductor to to stop and bearing in mind that, that a lot of opera was written before the existence of recordings so the only way that you could hear one of these arias was to buy a ticket and sit through the entire opera if you wanted to hear it again you either had to buy a ticket and come back tomorrow night or applaud until they just did it again. So they would do that. They would repeat the same aria a second time. That's right. They would just sing the aria again. And it does still happen from time to time. Uh, what, what did begin to happen, because audiences would get used to applauding riotously so that they could hear the good bits a second time, what began to happen was opera houses started banning encores. Uh, it it, it is quite trying for the singers to sing the most difficult and taxing part of the performance twice back to back. Now, I think of an encore as something that happens after the performance, but you're saying that originally an encore would happen during a performance. So the word encore is French for again. Yeah, and so people would shout encore, meaning do it again, and then they'd, they'd do it again. Nowadays, the we use encore to mean they play something else after the end of the performance. But originally in, in opera, encores were literally repeating the uh, the aria that was just sung. So you, you'd stop the action, you'd break the fourth wall, you'd, not that there's a terribly well-developed sense of immersive realism in opera generally, <laughs> but you would, you would disrupt the show, you'd break the fourth wall, and they'd, they'd sing it again. So let's talk about encores. So this is another thing that I've been reflecting on at these concerts. There seems to be, and, and this is related to applause, people will applaud after an aria to get an encore, but they'll also applaud at the end of the concert to get an aria. It seems to me that audiences expect as if they deserve to have encores, and yet in many cases, encores just don't belong. And I'll, I'll cite two examples. Murray Pariah in 2016 at the same hall in Birmingham played four pieces and finished with Beethoven's Hammerklavier Piano Sonata, which is probably one of the most physically taxing piano sonatas of the Romantic era. The guy was drained. It's obvious that he's not going to play an encore, but it's not just that. It's that after that music, you don't want an encore. In fact, you don't even want the audience to applaud. You want to be able to appreciate the, the power of that music. Ah, you see, you've been you've been entirely taken in by the romantic notion of composer and performer as great artists. You want to digest their art in in silent reflection. But no, the great art itself in silent reflection. And and let me cite another example. Andra Schiff played Bach's Goldberg Variations a few years ago, and it was the same. At the end of the Goldberg Variations, what do you play as an encore? Do you play some little, I don't know little Chopin waltz or something? You just don't do it. Right. And, and this is this is a, a kind of programming question, isn't it? Like, if the performance is a series of, of miniatures, if it's a, a, a potpourri of different solo works, then there may be some light little frippery that you can add to the end of the performance that is 
that is a nice palate cleanser for the audience going home. But if what you've done is performed some single epic monolithic work for the concert, then it would be really odd and unbalanced programming to then stick a two-minute light miniature on the end of that. And it tends to be, when we were talking about this this last week, you were saying that you thought encores were were very common. They were expected. They, they were a normal thing. And I was saying that I, I didn't think so. I think it turns out that we just go to different types of classical performance. Yeah, you, you go to a lot of concerts, and, and I don't often... I don't often go to symphonic concerts. I, I more often go to see soloists or small ensembles, string quartets, things like that. That's right. And when you go to hear an orchestra, it tends to be that that orchestra is going to be here next week or tomorrow night. And and if you want to hear more of them, you can buy another ticket. Whereas if you go and see a soloist, this might be their their only visit to town this year. And so there's there's more of a kind of sense of, sense of occasion to it. Also, the soloist can spontaneously decide to perform from memory uh, an unaccompanied work. And it is entirely within their gift as the person on stage, the, the, the de facto host of events here. Whereas if there's an orchestra on the stage, that it's a more complex decision, they, yeah, they need to have the sheet music or have learned it from memory. They need to all have scores for the encore. Yeah. They they may need to reposition themselves. You have a whole orchestra on the stage. It's a much more complex logistical feat to decide to play a piece of music and then play it. So they have to have the sheet music. There has to be the decision that you're going to do it. There has to be an an appropriate piece of music that for which every required musician is already on the stage. And they would have had to have spent valuable time rehearsing it. And yeah, and normally you you would have rehearsed it. So. There are occasions when this comes about where it's decided, sure thing, we'll, uh, we'll throw this encore into the pads so that everybody's got it. And uh, particularly when an orchestra's touring, again, you have the, the sense of occasion, the uniqueness of them performing, but also they'll have done the same program night after night. And so it, it may make sense to have a work that they can perform as an encore, and which is uniquely theirs. Like Flight of the Bumblebees or something. Right, but, well, I'm, I'm thinking, like, uh, the, crowd the Mariinsky Orchestra play kind of as their anthem, the uh, overture to Glinka's Ruslan and Ludmilla. They seem to be able to play it faster than anybody else, and they do it extremely well, and they could bust that out as an encore whenever they're touring, because it's kind of theirs. And It's their warm-up piece? Yeah, well, it's kind of it's it's a treat for anybody to hear them play it, and so when they're touring, that would make a good encore for them. Whereas if you're going to hear the London Symphony Orchestra at the Barbican, it's not like they can have one piece that they always trot out as their encore, because they're playing to subscribers. Yeah, to go back to Andres Schiff, between 2004 and 2006, he performed and recorded all of Beethoven's piano sonatas, and he released them on ECM Records. Last year, this was released in a box set with an additional record, and it's called Encores After Beethoven. And what it was was one encore that he recorded after each performance. And he says in the notes, for me, it's essential not to seek entertainment, but rather to look for pieces that are closely related to the previously heard sonatas. So he played Schubert, Mozart, Haydn, Beethoven, and Bach. So he would play an encore after each one of these performances, which we're talking an hour and a half to two hours for the, the Beethoven performances, but he would play an encore, which 
on the surface seems a bit odd, but here it seems that he's carefully thought this out and he's treating the encore as part of the program. That's right, and, and you can do that if you have the time to plan it out. You know you're doing an entire cycle, you've thought through what might make a suitable encore and you've, you've made it part of the program. But even then, releasing them on the CD smells so much like an idea that was dreamt up in a marketing meeting when you're you, at, at a label you're so often looking for a, a unique hook to sell the same product again oh definitely it was it was certainly to get people who had some or even all of the original recordings to buy the box set but they've also sold this record separately so you didn't have to buy the box set to get them right but it, it still it still smells a lot like marketing in in the way in which it it struggles to justify doing this and and was not included on the the release of the original original set of CDs like if the, if you really thought that this was part of the program why didn't they go out on the CDs first time round well maybe there wasn't enough room because some of them were single CDs that were like 70 minutes or 75 minutes so so if you want to listen to the actual concerts you've got to rip all the CDs and make playlists with the encore for each one in the appropriate playlist. There, there was an interesting, speaking of encores, there was an interesting project a few years ago. Hilary Hahn, violinist Hilary Hahn, made a record in 2013 called In 27 Pieces, the Hilary Hahn Encores. And she commissioned a number of short pieces from a variety of composers and even took blind online submissions for the 27th composer. Worth noting that if you buy it from iTunes, you get a bonus track, so it's really 28 pieces. But this was interesting because a soloist is often going to want to do an encore because it's that bit where there's less stress. They can do something very showy. And frankly, I, I bought her album when it came out. It's very interesting to listen to it as a, an interesting selection of contemporary music for violin. Well, you know, there's, there's a lot to admire in Hilary Hahn's work. And I think this album is quite a special project because what... What she'd realised was that the encore is the one part, when, when performing as a soloist with orchestras all over the world, the one part of the performance that, that she really controls, doesn't really have to negotiate with anybody over, that, that her agent doesn't have to talk to anyone about, is, is the encore. And what that means is that she's able to champion composers through the encore. She's able to ensure that a, a composer's work gets performed on some of the grandest stages in the world and is able to expose this music to, to a really large number of people. I have a naive question. Why did she include these pieces as the encore? Why not just, if they're so special, why not just make them part of the main program? You know, a, an encore is kind of a different proposition to a, a work in the program. You can do a, a meaty and self-contained program and then follow it up with a it's it's like a chaser you know it's it's more concentrated it's not part of the main event it stands on its own and and doesn't need to be doesn't demand to be taken seriously as part of the rest of the program and you can have fun with it as a result and it might not scare away potential audiences. If they see that there's a piece by I Know Yuhani Rautavara on the program, they might not buy tickets, but they'll get a Rautavara piece as an encore. And for them, it's a sort of a lanyap. 
Absolutely. So it's it's kind of like a, a big pop or rock concert where, say, Bruce Springsteen plays for a couple of hours and then plays 15 minutes of songs for an encore. So the encore becomes a special mini event, and it's understood as such. So it's not an encore, play it again, it's give us something more. That, that's right. right. And and it's in the encores at a rock show, it's in the encore that you're much more likely to get the solo acoustic cover of something. Or the or the guest who comes on on stage to sing yes, a song. Yes, the guest who comes on. And, and, and those are the sort of unique and special, special moments where a risk is taken, where a, a surprise is experienced. Yeah, but it's not the sort of thing you would include in the main portion of the program. Well, it, it would lack the spontaneity and you couldn't sell it. I mean, this is this is the thing about kind of management by committee that you get in the the planning of concert programs. People have meetings about this, and it's decided there's a negotiation. And for every composer that nobody's heard of on the program, you're going to lose ten percent of your audience. And the people booking the show know that. But whereas Rautavara might be a turn off listed in the concert program at some venues it's an an exciting addition and a nice surprise as an encore so related to encores is the curtain call and and i find this very interesting so i'll go back to this same concert with murray pariah and and the neville mariner band the academy of saint martin in the fields and tomo keller who leads the ensemble played this romance for violin and orchestra interestingly when i bought the tickets for the concert it wasn't on the program it was just the symphony and the piano concerto so he wanted to add something where he would be the guy in the center of the stage performing doing the swaying sort of andre rieu violin stuff and it was an attractive though drab piece of music and he finished and he bowed and he walked off stage and he stood by the stage door for 10 seconds and he came back on and he bowed and people applauded and he walked off stage and he stood by the stage door for 10 seconds and he came back on again and bowed. And I think he must have done this six times. And I think the people were applauding after a while just out of politeness saying, okay, would you just go away and play the real music now? But after every classical piece, there is this constant series of curtain calls. They go off, they come back, they go off, they come back, just to maintain the applause. And it just seems so artificial. So this is a funny one, isn't it? It's it's a case of stage management and, and reading the room correctly. Like, a lot of the time, the way that you prompt a curtain call is to not stay on stage and acknowledge the applause for long enough. So if you if you want it to happen, then... While the applause is still rising in intensity, you leave. And then that intensity is maintained until you come back. And if you stay until the applause begins to die down, if you just stand there and let this get boring, then then people will stop and you can carry on with the concert or everyone can go home. But it is a matter of reading the room and a matter of showmanship and stage management. The tricky thing is that quite often it's up to the artist to decide when they leave the stage and it's up to the uh, stage manager or the presenter standing in the wings to decide whether or not to send them back on. And so you can have a, a, a certain tension created here in what either of them wants to do. Uh, I know that at some venues they count the number of curtain calls as a way of 
getting some metric on how the audience responded, how much they enjoyed it. Because the thing is, everyone in the audience bought their tickets before they heard it. <laughs> and when, when, when everything is sold out, you, it's difficult to make judgments over what, what people really enjoyed and what they didn't, what people would buy again and, and what they didn't. And so there is, there is a direct financial incentive there as well to manipulate the process of curtain calls to the advantage of of those people involved, both the presenter or stage manager and the artist. And they both have limited control over what's going on and also an imperfect read on the mood of the room. Yet once the house lights go up, the applause dwindles, no matter what. No matter how excited the people were, those lights, it's like taking a cold shower, isn't it? That's right. Well, it's... It's a cue. Yeah, it's a cue to clear off. Yeah, it's like when you're having a meeting with somebody and they say thank you very much and stand up. <laughs> They're telling you to leave as politely as possible. Yes. Interestingly, I go to the theater a lot and you, I've never seen more than two curtain calls here at the theater. What you'll often see is the first curtain call is all the dead people get up from the stage and all the other people come on from the wings and the whole cast bows and and here in stratford the theater is a thrust theater so you have seats on three sides so they bow to the front they bow to the right then they bow to the left and they go off and then often the star of the show will come on first for about 15 seconds for applause and then if there's like a second level of stars they'll come on and then the rest of them come on but after the two curtain calls that's it house lights up time to go home right and there are classical concerts where this happens there's as we said, you go and see a lot of soloists where it's a big event performance. And as part of an event performance, there's much more much more sense of occasion. It's much more likely that the performer's going to milk it a little bit. And also much more of a sense that everyone in the audience has come for something special and they know they're not going to get it again next week. And... And they want the performer to come back too. Like it, it's a way of it's a way of showing we'll all buy tickets again if you book them again. We can't talk about applause without talking about one person who was always in the audience. It's the Bravo guy. Oh yeah, this guy. Oh, Bravo guy. This guy. I don't know how he gets to so many concerts, but at the end of every concert, before the notes have faded out, he yells Bravo. Or if he's really cool, he yells Bravi because that's, I guess, the plural of bravo. I don't know. What is up with this? Th these people should be strung up. Well, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, as, as one who on occasion is responsible for making live recordings at performances, I, I do sort of feel like there's a special place in hell reserved for the person who destroys the reverb on the end of the last note. But at the same time... That's the easiest thing to prepare for when you're making a live recording, right? You can record the last note of the piece fading into silence before the concert at the end of the rehearsal, where you usually get slightly longer reverb because the audience isn't in. And then you can just stick that over the top of wherever bravo or brava or bravi gets yelled during the performance. Um, it is a kind of obnoxious thing to do isn't it it's it's like it's the height of pretension too but it's like it's the audience equivalent of the trumpet player who plays the note at the top of the chord slightly longer than everyone else in the band so that 
so that you can hear that that by four seconds in he'd finally found a, a super G or a, a, a top A. I can do it. I can hit it. I can do it. And in case you didn't hear it, here it is, all on its own. And and it, but it's like the the audience equivalent of that. It's like in reverse. I'm going to shout first so that you all know that I appreciated it, and also that. I knew where the end of the piece was. It's it's interesting that in in declaring that he has to shout it slightly before the end of the piece. Um, <laughs> that's indicating maybe he doesn't fully understand the technicalities of where the end of the piece is. <laughs> is it always? It's always a man, right? Women don't do this, right? It's always it's always a man. Yeah, always. He's always in his forties or fifties. He always has a, a score under his arm because he's either been reading the score before the concert or been following along during the concert. He doesn't want to shout bravo in the wrong place, does he? <laughs> I mean, I mean, this is this is a high-stakes game he's playing here. You know, I, I usually wait till people started standing up before I'll start clapping. You know, I mean, if, you, if you've decided that you're a bravo guy, I think bravo guys are a bit like Santa. Or obviously, they're real, but couldn't possibly be everywhere at once so there must be more than one of them uh, if 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 you have appointed yourself a, a bravo guy or if you've been somehow inducted into that secret society you you must have decided in advance some point during the performance this concert warranted a, a premature ejaculation of appreciation on, on your part and so of course you've taken the score with you you've planned your moment and it is a high stakes game because if you if you shout it like five bars early then, then you will need to dig a hole in the floor to die in, and if you're a millisecond too late, someone else will have got there before you. You know, it's it's the concert equivalent of finding an article and just writing first in the comments. That's the thing. I never hear two Bravo guys. I was going to ask: Is there ever more than one? Don't the Bravo start to cascade after a while? I think there's a union requirement that there can only be one in every concert. But what if there were more than one? What if they broke the rule? <laughs> um, I mean, do they decide ahead of time? Who's do, you think, gonna... do you think, I mean, do, do they have a code of conduct? Like when they're inducted into the society, do, do, do they sign up and say, I, I will yield the floor to somebody who shouts bravo before me? But then, you know, do they, does that mean that they have an annual general meeting at which they argue finer points of bravo etiquette like is it all right to shout bravi after somebody has shouted bravo on the grounds that it is grammatically more correct and and thus the first legitimate vocal expression of appreciation for the performance so i could shout bravo but someone else could shout bravi and then they would be the bravo guy well, they'd be bravi guy. Oh, of course. Or brava, or bravora, or bravissimo. <laughs> How come there's no one to bravissimo? Shouldn't it be a thing like in poker? You know, I'll see your bravo and raise you one bravissimo. It does get a bit like that with you. I'll see your clapping and raise you one bravo. I'll see your bravo and raise you one standing ovation. You know, you quite often see, like, lone standing ovation guy. is <laughs> less, less vocally obnoxious than uh, less audibly obnoxious than Bravo Guy, but equally lonely. Well, you know, lonely, yes, but it's a solo performance. But if, if Mrs. Bravo Guy is with him, imagine how what she has to go through. I do wonder if if the thinking here is, is because it, it does it does always seem quite contrived that it happens like right at the beginning of before the beginning of the applause. If maybe they think that if they do this, 
they will encourage a greater spontaneous expression of appreciation on the part of the audience. Maybe, in fact, it is the artist's agent being bravo guy. It, it's a clack. Yeah. I mean, a, a clack is a, is a group of people who's, who are paid to go into a theater and applaud. And this is often, was often used in the 19th century to get other people to applaud. And, and the sort of, the stimulus of 20 or 30 people applauding would sort of spread through the theater like a wave in a football game and everyone would applaud. Right. Which is, which is why you should always rely on double blind listening tests to decide whether or not a performance or piece of repertoire was any good. Because people will be led around by the nose like this, and our reactions are, and our assessments of quality are so subjectively flawed and, and so subject to external biases. But yeah, I think what would be really interesting, you don't want to talk to me about this, you, you want to track down Bravo Guy and interview him. <laughs> be like, dude, what do you, I mean, if, you, like, if, we, if we promise anonymity, like, will Bravo Guy contact us and, and on, on the promise of protecting our source so that soloists all over the world don't track him down and maim him? Would, would, would you, Bravo Guy, come on the show and tell and, us about And we can, we can do some sort of thing to disguise his voice as well. So, Bravo Guy, if you're listening, do get in touch and we'd love to have a chat with you. Andy, this has been more fun than I expected. Thanks so much for joining us for this discussion. Thank you very much. And before I go, uh, I'd really like to plug on the on the subject of applause. Um, in 2010, Alex Ross was invited by the Royal Philharmonic Society to give their annual lecture. And his chosen subject was a historical review of the role of applause in performance and the history of clapping between movements. And... He covers this so much better than I ever could that uh, if anybody would like some further reading, I, I encourage you, we'll put it in the show notes. Please do check that out. And thank you both for having me on the show. I was going to say bravo, but I don't want to be that guy. It is uh, time for us to present our next tracks. Kirk, what are you going to be listening to? So for my next track this week, I'm not going to pick a classical recording, which would fit better with the episode, but I'm going to pick a jazz record that I've been listening to on Apple Music a few times. It's called Hudson, and it's by Jack DeJohnette, Larry Grenadier, John Modeski, and John Schofield. Now, these are four musicians who are very well-known, who've, who've been around the block. Jack DeJohnette played with Miles Davis, and Larry Grenadier, he's the bass player for Brad Meldow. John Modeski is in the Modeski-Martin and Wood trio, unless they broke up, and John Schofield's a well-known jazz guitarist. And they've put together an album which... The, the first thing I read about this album was a sort of jazz supergroup, and it's not like that, but it's a bunch of guys playing music that's really quite interesting and that's really fun, they do a number of covers, and, and they do several Dylan covers. They do Lay, Lady, Lay, and A Hard Rain's Gonna Fall. They do Joni Mitchell's Woodstock, and they do the bands up on Cripple Creek. But they've got a sound that is sort of post-Miles Davis fusion, but updated for 2017. It's really hard to describe jazz, and, and it's even harder to describe this. It's an album that has some dissonance, that has a lot of rhythm, that has some really interesting sounds, and I, and I recommend everyone check it out. So it's called Hudson. 
on the album cover, the, the name of the artist is just listed as Dijonet, Grenadier, Medeski, and Schofield. You can get it on Apple Music or Spotify or your whatever streaming service. Doug, what are you listening to this week? The Suburbs are back. The Suburbs were a uh, popular Minneapolis new wavy rock dance band in the 70s and 80s, and they've either found a bunch of stuff that they recorded back then and tweaked it, or they've just done a wonderful job recreating it. They've released an album called Hey Muse, and that's also the single that alternative stations are playing. I've only listened to a couple of songs so far and sort of needle-dropped the rest, and I, I've, I've found it irresistible and infectious. I'm kind of excited about going back and listening a little closer. This isn't cheesy synth dance pop rock, and, and this isn't a let's get the band back together affair. There's energy on this album. Uh, it, it's, it's the real deal. You can definitely hear the sincerity in what they're trying to do. And if you're familiar with any of their stuff from the last century, you'll be refreshingly delighted. The Suburbs, Hey Muse, it's my next track. This has been The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.